And welcome to the CJN Daily and the fourth episode of our CJN Daily podcast, where we pay tribute to Jewish leaders who have passed away in recent weeks. Now we've got a brand new name. So from now on, we're going to be called the CJN Daily Honorable Mention, where we give honorable mention to honorable mention. And to do that, I'm joined, as always, by our CJN Emeritus reporter, Ron Silla. Good to see you, Ron. Oh, it's good to be here. Good to be here. Today's episode is interesting because it's a lot of women. Usually we talked a lot about in the last three episodes about men who passed away, right. Irving Abella and some of the uh, Holocaust survivor Max Eisen was the last one. And today we're talking about four women and one I man. If you want, we can have a discussion on why we haven't done uh, women in great quantity. There's a reason for it. And there's a reason for it in the obit writing community. If we have time, we can get to no, it later. No, no, no. Tell us now. What do you think? Well, I'm, I was always asked when I was writing obits, why so many men all the time? Why, where are the women? The answer is, is really demographic, that the people are, are, who are dying today at age 90 made their mark at a time when women weren't making their mark yet or weren't in a position to. Uh, uh, either women were excluded or uh, told to stay home and have babies. Uh, 50, 60 years ago, that was the case. Uh, I always tell people, wait a few years and you'll see more, more women who have made their mark. And uh, uh, not deliberately today, we have um, uh, four great women uh, who've made their mark. And see, that has to do with the fact that they came up at a time when women were starting to enter the workforce and were you know, permitted to have an impact. And on public life too, not just exactly. workforce, but in their volunteer sector, very important. So shall we start off with a, na- a woman who has a famous last name, mm-hmm. Corinne Bronfman, originally from Montreal. Mm-hmm. She passed away just recently, just a couple of weeks ago. She died on October 7th. She was a part of the Bronfman family. If you go online, you see a giant uh, tree of the Bronfman family. You'll find her father in there. His name was Gerald. Um, uh, and the late Marjorie. Uh, she was born in Montreal. Corinne became an artist. She attended school, and like all uh, young people who wanted to be an artist, she moved to Paris, where she was uh, an adventurous and very free-spirited person, we were told. Um, and her work hangs in many private collections. I believe it's also in the National Gallery. So she obviously had a talent, but what I find most interesting about her is that I've never heard of an artist who became an economist. You know, you hear about economists who dabble in art, but not the other way around. She was really serious about it. She had a midlife career change in 1988, and she earned a PhD in economics from NYU. So she was not just a dabbler and not a dilettante. She was the real deal. And she uh, abandoned her artistic career, at least full time. She went to work as a professor at, I believe, the University of Arizona. She was based in Tucson. And then she became an economist for the U.S. Treasury Department in Washington. Um, then she retired, and then she devoted herself to a bunch of philanthropic endeavors, uh, a lot of these microfinance organizations, uh, something in Georgetown, the Waterfront Park. She was um, a really wide-ranging, uh, not a dabbler at all, brave, very self-reliant person, uh, and she got muscular dystrophy for much of her life. She swam, she exercised, and as there's a bit of a cliche, but it's true, she lived life on her own terms. So uh, uh, another interesting woman who's left us. And 
On the same theme as disability, the next person we want to speak to was mainly an activist for people in the disabled community. So let's talk about the late Helen Wolf. I think the key to ensuring that each child meets his full potential is thinking of the classroom as a community of learners. I think the teacher has to show students how to help one another and celebrate that kind of collaboration. Yeah, Helen Wolf was uh, different in the sense that she was born disabled. She was born with spina bifida uh, at a time when uh, very little was known about it, deformation of the, of the spine. And she, she, was, she went through school uh, at a time when people with disabilities were segregated. She went to an elementary school where kids were, cele- were segregated. She was told she wouldn't wind up as much. Uh, she went to university. She went to teacher's college. Where on the very first day of teacher's college, the principal told her she should quit because she would never get a job. She used the wheelchair, she used crutches. She didn't use a wheelchair all that much. She used a scooter and occasionally a wheelchair, but mostly crutches to get around. She had a very fierce determination uh, to live life to the fullest. She really upended a lot of social norms that existed at the time, but stereotypes that described people with disabilities and held them back. Um, We lost her over the summer. She was from Toronto? She was from Toronto. She died less than two weeks after her disease was diagnosed, which was cancer. So she went very, very quickly. Uh, She became, she she was uh, 69. So she was fairly young. She spent uh, 37 years as a teacher, bucking that trend. 37 years. She taught English as a second language to new immigrants uh, and refugees at three schools in the Toronto District School Board. She authored 37 teacher's guides. Wow. And she wrote three books. Uh, about people with uh, who overcame some sort of obstacle or another. And there's one, I believe, coming out early next year posthumously. Uh, so we'll have to say, wait and see what that is. But um, quite a remarkable woman who, who never took no for an answer, who traveled widely. And one of her uh, great memories was climbing Masada, which she did by cable car. Now, uh, I want to bring up somebody who we've been meaning to talk about all summer since she passed away, uh, Sheila Goldblum. She has a famous last name as well, and maybe you can tell our audience listeners, they might have heard of the name already from sort of Quebec Jewish, Montreal Jewish royalty. Well, I don't, I don't, don't normally like to define women no. by their husbands, but in this case, the name is a household name in Quebec. Victor Goldblum was her husband. He was a very well-known uh, pediatrician. Uh, but what he, uh, his claim to fame was becoming Quebec's first Jewish cabinet minister. And that was quite a coup uh, for the Jewish community. He later became, I believe he became... Yeah, Commissioner Commissioner of Official Languages. Uh And she had a famous son. I just want to say a shout out to uh, Michael Goldblum, who I believe became the publisher of the the Montreal Gazette for a while. Yeah, Yeah. But uh, Sheila was uh, a a force majeure in her own right. She was American. She graduated from Mount Holyoke in 1947. It's true women didn't graduate from college too much in those days, but it was a women's college and very prestigious in Massachusetts. Uh, as we say, she died in July, a grand old age of uh, 96. She became a social work professor at McGill. Uh, she was well known as a community volunteer, and that's a term that doesn't even begin to describe the number of uh, organizations, educational, social, that she served. Um, she was an educator, an early champion of the McGill Middle East Program for Civil Society and Peacebuilding. It's known as something else today, the International Community Action Network. That's brought together Israelis, Palestinians, Jordanians to at least begin something of a dialogue. Uh, She was an advocate for later in life, vulnerable seniors. She was 82 when she was appointed by the Quebec government to um, 
to lead a commission that toured the province listening to what is it the elderly wanted. And so her first job was actually with the League of Women Voters uh, in her native city. She had a huge impact on, on the social network of Quebec. She also retired late in life until, worked, I believe, until 1992. Um, and then she became an active political wife, as they were known in those days. And uh, she was sort of um, lent a human face to, to uh, whatever it is the Quebec government was doing. And she was really an amazing human being. She had a unique gift to make everyone feel heard, as she was described, respected, appreciated. And the list of organizations that she was involved in was like huge. She did Meals on Wheels in Montreal, the Batshaw Youth Centers, um, Jewish Family Services. Uh, she was involved in Vanier College and so on. And I know that when she passed away, they wrote that she had written a book in her, late, in her later years And she was kind of, I remember listening to an interview that they did with her that she was sort of afraid to write a book, but her kids sort of, you know, told her, okay, you can do this. And she wrote a book. Do you, do you have the name of it? The, the, um, her memoir was actually called Opening Doors, which says a lot about her life. And that was only published three years ago. I really care. I, re I think change has to happen or we're going to blow up the world. That we have to learn how to Be, look at other people that and other things that are not looking in if a black if it does green and what have you look beyond it be or get involved in some way of getting conversation otherwise it, it's very difficult now it is holocaust education month november kristallnacht and lots of programming across Canada and around the world about the Holocaust. And we would be remiss if we didn't share the story of the late Nancy Kleinberg. Mm. You guys may, you listeners may have seen her story and her husband's story in other media as well, not just the Canadian Jewish News, because they, they had a love story that was, should have been in a movie and probably was. This is a story where um, Nancy Kleinberg met her future husband, the man who would become you know, her husband, at Bergen-Belsen. What made this different was that Howard, her husband-to-be, uh, after liberation of Bergen-Belsen in April of 1945, was as near death as anyone could be. He was suffering from typhus, as everyone probably else was, starvation, dysentery. She walked into the room because she was looking for her brother, who she had visited in that barracks. It was the men's barracks. And there was Howard. And he was on the floor among all the corpses, but he was alive. But when I saw him lying on the ground, I said to my aunt and my uh, friend and her sister, you know, he's still alive, we're gonna try and nurse him back to help. And they said, Nancy, are you crazy? Can't you see he's dead? And I said, he's not dead yet. If we let him lie here, for sure we'll die. I mean, it, 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 it already sounds like a movie, right? He looked very sick. She took care of him for three weeks nursed him back to health uh, as much as she could with the, the available, whatever she had, medical, water, food, so medical. Nice. Um, she walked into the barracks one day and he wasn't there. Turns out the British who uh, helped liberate the place took him to a hospital. Um, and then they found each other again in Toronto after the war. And they got married. <laughs> I mean, it's an amazing story. And they were married for 63 years. And... He found her, he went to visit her. I think he took flowers with him and said, do you remember me? And her first response was, oh, it's you? <laughs> and then he started to thank her and I'm sure there were many tears involved and um, 
he said he lacked words for how he thanked her. No kidding. Three years later, they got married. Um, I'm fairly, I'm not sure about uh, whether Howard's still with us or no, not, no, but they have four children or they had four children, about a dozen grandchildren and two great grandchildren. So that's the legacy of a woman who uh, met her beshert, as they say, and uh, nursed him back to life, not just back to health, but back to life. They were also very uh, popular Holocaust speakers, yes. Holocaust educators. They filled a very important role when they were living in Toronto yeah. as well and told their story to the, the world. It was an international story when it came out. Yeah, and um, um, I think they're on file at a school in Toronto that collects Holocaust survivors' memoirs called Crestwood. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was... This was the kind of story that is irresistible to everyone, especially kids. Kids loved this story. We'll put a link to that interview in the video in, in our show notes. Mm -hmm. And we've got time for, for a man. <laughs> <laughs> the late Kurt Rothschild passed mm -hmm. away. Can you tell us a little bit about who he was and how much he accomplished? Well, Kurt was synonymous with mostly religious Zionist and Orthodox causes. The list was huge. Another very interesting life, born in Germany in 1920. Uh, his parents sent him to England in 1937, and he, was, he came to, New, to Canada uh, around 1940, where he landed, and New Brunswick interned him for 18 months behind barbed wire because that was Canada's policy because he was German and he was interned as an enemy alien. After that, he studied electrical engineering. Then he began a business career, as an Orthodox Jew, he obviously believed in the importance of involvement in the community. He was active in uh, former Soviet Union countries, but he was sort of the central pillar of, as I recall, Shari Tzedek Medical Center, the Jerusalem College of Technology, and definitely Bar-Ilan University, and he raised millions of dollars for these, these causes. He was married to his wife, Edith, in 19... Sorry, for 70 years. There's something. They made Aliyah in 2012. From Toronto. From Toronto. And uh, he began to devote more time and attention to communities in sort of Israel's outer fringes, its periphery, towns that were established in the Negev, uh, where people needed help, where Israel's, especially those Israelis who were displaced from the Gaza Strip. When Gaza was uh, handed over to the Palestinians, there was a Jewish settlement in Gush Katib. All these people were displaced. They had to rebuild their lives. Kurt was there to help them. He was in touch with Israeli leaders. He was on good terms with, uh, even though they were on opposite sides of the political spectrum, with Shimon Peres, obviously Benjamin Netanyahu. He was a life, another life well-lived and never strayed for a moment from his Orthodox roots. What I find interesting about the Jerusalem College that you mentioned is that it's in the news now because uh, they are trying to teach Haredi boys to be engineers and not just study Torah all the time. Yeah. And so it's become a big cause celebre for fundraising. And in fact, they just had a large event in Canada. They had former U.S. Ambassador Nikki Haley speak at the same time in Toronto with the former Israeli ambassador to the U.N., Danny Danon. You're right. Kurt definitely believed in higher education. He, it, It's not that he looked down on people who who devote their lives to studying Torah and Talmud all day, you never would have said so. But he made an extra effort to get people interested in science and technology, thus his support for uh, the Jerusalem College of Technology, it's known as Machon Lev, and definitely bar -Alan University, which is an orthodox institution. The image of a million Jewish children that were slaughtered by the Nazis always remained with me. And I feel, therefore, that we have an obligation to 
do honor to their memory by working for the Jewish people and helping to guarantee their existence physically here in Israel. Fascinating lives. You can read more about all these people on the CJN website, the cjn.ca. And we'll end with two quick shout outs to two honorable mention who we don't have room to go into at fully today, but they are very well known in Ontario circles. So first is Harvey Rosen, the late mayor of Kingston. Harvey Rosen was the first Jewish, the first and only Jewish mayor of the city of Kingston. He, he uh, rose to that distinction in 2003. There was a big article about him in the CJN at the time that I wrote. There was a bit of a controversy. He championed this. He was, he was best known for championing this massive complex. It was actually renamed for a while, I think, the K-Rock Center. Yeah, the K-Rock <laughs> Center. 5,700 seats, you know, lots of acts and so on. Uh, he was reelected, though, by a very, very slim margin in 2006. And in Ottawa, one of the founders of the, the Jewish community, Chick Taylor, passed away recently. His claim to fame for people who live in Ottawa is in the grocery business. Chick and his brother Irving, who died in 2012, were owners of several IGA Loeb stores throughout Ottawa. And these are our honorable mention. Once again, it's been great to learn about all these important leaders. Thanks, Ron, for all your stories about them. And as always, we're open for suggestions from you, the audience. Who should we talk about next time? If you'd like to get in touch with us, email me at ebessner at thecjn.ca. Any last words? No last words, not yet. Not from me, but stay tuned. <laughs> as my father, late father, always used to say, we're still on the right side of the grass today. All right, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.